And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the hosts attend. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. And today we are going to discuss the topic of assurance. Now, this is a topic that hits most of us in a deep and emotional way. And to help us with this topic, we have brought on Mike Abendroth. Mike is the rock star host of No Compromise Radio and is also the senior pastor of Bethlehem Bible Church. Welcome to the show, Mike. Guys, does that mean I have to uh, drink Rockstar and not some kind of Red Bull or something like that? <laughs> Anything but Monster. Anything but Monster. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm trying to help young men preach uh, and they're very um, reticent to show any emotions or raise their voice or use hand motions or become passionate in preaching, I tell them, Do you know what? I have two options for you. A, pray, or B, drink a Red Bull. (laughs) (laughs) And I like it how Matthew had to introduce you, Onik. He didn't want to have to pronounce your last name, so you had to put that in the little blurb. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) We've we've literally known each other since high school. Yes. And he still can't pronounce my name too long <laughs> what does onig actually mean is it does it mean something like michael means who is like god what does onig mean i know uh, what it means but i won't tell you <laughs> uh actually i looked it up and it, it means sweet fragrance and i, I beg to differ <laughs> wow that is amazing I, I there was a guy that used to go to our church and his name was Gladman and he was from I think Uganda and I said how did you get the name Gladman and he said because when my uh, father saw me when I was born he said I am a very glad man oh okay <laughs> guys I'm glad to be on the show uh, I think the last time I saw both of you was maybe uh, last August or so in Burbank for the uh, Calvary's uh, marriage conference, and so uh, it's good to I know that you're on the radio and trying to promote the gospel yes. through the Reformation. I did my homework, and I asked people like Scott Clark, was it okay to come on? He said yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are there. We've arrived. Yes, we are so <laughs> glad and privileged to have you, Mike. 
Well, and it's a good topic, too, that you've picked uh, the assurance of salvation because it's something literally that affects every Christian, right? And some Christians are more affected by it than others. That is, they struggle with it more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's something that affects, you know, older Christians, younger Christians, uh, struggling Christians. You know, there are certain topics in the Bible that uh, are, of course, important, but they don't affect as many people. But this is one that keeps people up at night, uh, causes anxiety, or on the flip side, causes great comfort so uh, i i love the topic and i and i think even early on with first john five thirteen, these things i have written to you that you may believe in the name of the son of god that you may know you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the son of god so that's something i wish every christian listener today will have great assurance and i'm sure with your questions and the answers from the bible we can help our listeners have that assurance that god wants them to have amen amen all right mike let's jump right into it so i have a question for you you came to this topic in a very personal way and can you explain to people your journey to assurance Sure. I got saved in 1989, and it was a, I don't know um, uh, exactly when I got saved, but but it was dramatic in terms of the human side with conversion because I lived a fairly licentious life, and then the Lord saved me from that. And I began to uh, study the Bible. And early on, I think I had lots of assurance because I would look at the fruit of my life and there was fruit. And I had a desire to read the Bible and I had a desire to tell other people about sin and the Savior Jesus. And I think it was easier for me to see some of that evidence or fruit of the Spirit's working in my life since I came from a licentious background. And then over time, I uh, began to teach the Bible uh, to other people. And then I became a pastor. And I never really had a lot of struggle with assurance, per se. I, I did say to myself at times, uh, driving even out of the church parking lot, um, you know, could this all be true? I wonder if I'm just uh, making this all up. Is my life dedicated to, to nothing but some kind of myth or fable? But what happened was about uh, four years ago, I think it must have been 2000. 16, uh, I went in and I had my test for uh, prostate uh, levels. And then they said, well, it's kind of high. And so then I got the biopsy that showed prostate cancer. And speaking of radio and all that, guys, it, it was amazing to me because I had just got off the radio doing wretched radio for Todd Friel. And in one sense, it's kind of a national show and all the different stations. And I thought, you know what, here I am sitting in Massachusetts doing wretched radio. This is pretty good life. Uh, And I walked over to the phone and the doctor left a message while I was on the radio. And he said, this is Dr. So-and-so of Boston, you know, particular hospital. And uh, call me when you get a chance. Mm. I knew exactly what it was because he would have said if I didn't have cancer, hi, this is Dr. So-and-so. I know it's just before Christmas. Have a great Christmas. Um, You don't have cancer. Call me if you need to. Anyway, if I compress all the time, basically I was face to face with two things. Number one, preaching through the book of Hebrews. And number two, knowing that I had cancer. And I would sit downstairs and try to work through that. And I thought, I shouldn't worry this much. I shouldn't be full of this much anxiety. Uh, 
there are all kinds of factors to play and, and your listeners can probably figure it out for themselves with prostate cancer about continency and um, intimacy and all kinds of other things that go along with prostate problems. So I just was racking my brain and I kept thinking, why am I struggling like this? I'm a Christian pastor. I, if you would have said to me, if you get cancer, how do you think you'll do spiritually? I would have probably gave a fairly humble answer. I think I'd be okay, but God's sovereign over every molecule. Psalm 103, his sovereignty rules over all. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he works everything to good, you know, for his good and, and for my good, his glory. But I didn't think I did very well. Publicly, I handled myself well, praise the Lord. In front of my family, we had sweet times around the Psalms, and I would tell them what I was thinking. But privately, downstairs in this very room, I was pretty much a wreck. And I realized my big problem was not unrighteousness. My big problem was self-righteousness, right? And when you think about the gospel, um, we're all lacking righteousness. We are required to have a perfect righteousness. Um, and, and we, to get into heaven, need that. That is uh, Romans 2.13, the doers of the law shall be justified. And God requires a perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience, and uh, that is with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And since I didn't think I'd had a lot of unrighteous things in my life, I mean, praise the Lord, I'm faithful to my wife, and I don't look at pornography and blah, 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 blah. But it's the self-righteousness that you depend on yourself mm -hmm. for your own righteousness and standing before God. And so it was wrecking my assurance. So the long answer to your short question, Matt, is I began to think through Hebrews and who Jesus was. And I have a righteousness outside of myself. And I started thinking about categories, justification, sanctification. My foundation before the Lord is Christ Jesus. My condition, uh, the condition that I have before him is in Christ Jesus. And then there are fruits and evidences. So how this relates to assurance is simple. Too often we only look at the subjective side of our life, fruit of the Holy Spirit, Second Peter chapter 1. Those things are true, but that's the only place we look typically in our evangelical world. But I was forced to go back to the perfect righteous one, the Lord Jesus, who in Hebrews is the high priest, and he offers himself as a sacrifice, and then he prays for sinners uh, who he has saved. And so here's, here's a, an example, and then you can ask clarifying questions if you'd like. I thought, I don't pray like I should. I, I don't pray as often as I should. I don't pray like I should. And what Hebrews taught me was, while though I should be convicted for my lack of prayer life or the intensity thereof, there is one who prays for me. In Hebrews chapter 7, he makes intercession for me. Matter of fact, the text says in 725, he lives to make intercession. And even if you look at Jesus on earth, he prayed for his people. And so I began to rehearse, uh, do I pray enough? Do I evangelize enough? Do I read the Bible enough? Enough, 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 enough. And that's one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remind us that there's not just the evidence, our fruit side of salvation, uh, but the foundational aspect, and that is the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So that drove me, Hebrews and cancer drove me to the primacy of the objective work of Christ for assurance, followed by secondarily, and we can't exclude it, but I think it's secondary, secondarily, the fruit of assurance, the evidence of assurance or salvation, and that is uh, a changed life and desires and, and uh, uh, thoughts and hopes that have been changed. Amen.
Uh, Mike, getting into the actual theology of assurance, well, let's first look at um, what is assurance for the Christian. Uh, what Can you tell us what it is in regards to... Um, uh, is it related to justification? You know, uh, that is God's method of saving sinners. Is it related to sanctification? That is God's method and changing or cleansing sinners into the image of Christ, or is it related to both? Right. Well, even before that, Onig, I always like to say there is a false assurance that people have, right? There's a spurious faith. There's a faith that doesn't save. There's um, a James 2. People say that they have faith but have no works. That faith can't save them. And yeah. I think in, in probably our worlds, maybe uh, lordship worlds, we're concerned about that false faith. And rightfully mm -hmm. so. Jesus said in Luke 8, people can receive the word with joy and then they fall away. Right. And uh, therefore, when the question is asked, what about assurance? Of course, we don't want to give false assurance uh, to these spurious uh, professors who, who aren't really Christians. But I think what's happened over time is we're so afraid uh, to talk to those people uh, that then we don't tell Christians about assurance. So for you to ask me the question, insightfully so, what about for the Christian? So I regularly tell people now when I'm preaching, dear Christian, dear Christian, dear Christian, because my responsibility is primarily for the sheep that God has sent to the church. Now, some are goats. I know that. And I tell people almost every week, if you're not a Christian, these promises are not for you. You ought to run to the cross and repent and trust in the risen Savior who died for sinners like you. But dear Christian, God's not mad at you. God's not angry with you. Why? Because he's poured out his wrath on his son. So what is assurance? Uh, I think probably if we start at the first initial uh, stages of assurance, we should understand the difference between security and assurance. When you go to Romans chapter 8, for instance, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that's how it starts. Romans 8 ends with nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the security of the believers. Uh, if you think about the doctrines of grace or tulip, the final P, it's often stated as the preservation of this, uh, a perseverance of the saints, but we also know it's the preservation of God. He preserves the saints mm -hmm. and he gives them security. And it is a reality whether you feel it or you don't. Every Christian uh, who has been, you know, every Christian has been justified, and they will be Romans uh, chapter 8, glorified. And that's whether you feel that or not. That's whether you have a confidence in that or not. That's whether you realize that in uh, your feelings and your emotions and your thoughts or not. It is true no matter what. So assurance is, as Joel Beakey would say, a conviction that in fact you do belong to Jesus and you will enjoy everlasting life. And so if I said it a different way, I could probably say, uh, security is the objective reality that you are a sinner saved by the grace of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter. Um, I think I'm preaching through Hebrews, so everything's Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And then now, uh, for assurance, we want to feel that, as it were. We want to have assurance that that's true, uh, to have confidence. Um, some people call assurance a reflex act. Activity of faith mm -hmm. where, oh, we really have this conviction that in fact 
we know that we know that we know we're saved. Um, and so that's kind of a, a high, just a broad definition of assurance. And in the scripture, you'll see that language, full assurance of understanding, full assurance of hope, full assurance of faith. And therefore, uh, it's incumbent upon all of us as Bible teachers and individual Christians to know for sure, uh, right? Because the biggest problem we have in life is we're sinful and God is holy, holy, holy. And we want to make sure we're right with him because every other matter is secondary to our standing before God. You can have a great marriage, a great job. You can have make, make a lot of money. You can have friends, but you need to be right with God. And uh, having a false assurance, therefore, is the biggest mistake you could ever make. So I would say security is objective uh, fact. This is what God has done in Christ Jesus. It's irrevocable. Uh, God will keep his promise. Do we feel that? Do we notice that? Do we experience that joy and confidence and realization is what I would call the doctrine of assurance. Mike, how is this related directly to the doctrine of justification and sanctification? I guess that own a guess that and I didn't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you kind of did. Yeah, there you yeah. go. I mean, that's the fun part of this. We can just kind of go back I mean, and forth. Security is tied to justification, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so uh, if you think about what justification is, uh, of course, if you think of a legal uh, courtroom, uh, you get the picture, right? We're so used to dealing with therapeutic scenarios and family scenarios in the Christian life, and sometimes there's nothing wrong with those. But justification, it, it's in a legal courtroom setting. And of course, uh, the bar of God's justice is high because his law reflects his holy character and nature, and therefore he requires to use the language of the confessions, a personal, exact, entire obedience, perpetual obedience, personal obedience. And so we have to obey, do this and live. Uh, and therefore, when we sin, uh, we, uh, in fact, even one sin, uh, James chapter 2 talks about we've, we've broken all the law. So we stand before God as guilty, uh, Romans chapter 1, 2, and the first part of 3. But God in his kindness and his goodness, he, he loves sinners. God the Father loves sinners. That's why he sent Jesus. Uh, the Son loves sinners. That's why he went and perfectly obeyed and then died, was raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit, he loves sinners as well. And therefore, Christ the Son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under law, he obeys in our place. And so lots of times people think Jesus had to obey for himself. Uh, he was already inherently righteous. He doesn't have to obey for himself. He's mm -hmm. obeying for other people. So when you think of justification, you need to think of courtroom, and then you think of law-keeping, law-keeping to be justified. And Jesus perfectly keeps the law for us. He's meriting righteousness. Act of the act of obedience of Christ. Absolutely. Think about the word righteousness. The root word is right. You do the right thing, and therefore... It's righteous, and God is the Son earning righteousness while he's perfectly obeying the law. He didn't come down on Friday and then die. Why did he live that life? Well, he was earning righteousness for his people. And the interesting thing to me is, think about active and passive obedience. I think it directly relates to the law. So the law requires a positive fulfillment, mm -hmm. and if you break the law, there's a penalty. 
So there's a positive precept to obey, and then there's a negative penalty to pay for. And so the act of obedience of Jesus is that perfect righteousness that he obeys, and then he passively accepts the wrath of God for those sins. Well, justification is confirmed by the resurrection. So always think perfect obedience by Jesus, our disobedience credited to his account, and then confirmed by the resurrection. This justification, forensic, uh, legal, uh, alien, that is, we have a righteousness not from our own. God looks at us, and he sees that we are perfect now because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. There's this crediting, there's a, a, a reckoning, an accounting of righteousness. That's justification. Well, the wonderful thing about Jesus is he has two great benefits to his work. And uh, the Reformers talked about that double benefit, not just justification, but sanctification as well. Our problem in evangelicalism is that we combine the two. Uh, they are inseparable, but they're different. So, so justification uh -huh. is this legal declaration that we are perfect because Jesus has credited his perfection to our account and our sins are credited to his account. And then there's a sanctification where it's not God's work for us, justification, it's God's work in us. And that is sanctification and the Holy Spirit he is the sanctifier, and the Reformation would talk this way in its confessions. Justification by God, sanctification by God, and then thirdly, good works. We respond with good works. And therefore, what happens is when we think of security, justification should prove that security of the believers in Christ Jesus. But the sanctifying, the life that we live uh, since we're still dealing with the presence of sin, that sin, as we're learning and growing in practical righteousness, um, we, we wane in our obedience. And therefore, when we wane in our obedience, we begin to think, how could I ever be a Christian? Did I commit the unpardonable sin? So the difference between justification and sanctification, it directly relates to how do we experience assurance because I think we tend to focus on just the sanctification side of assurance and not going back mm. to justification. That is who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So in other words, we look at our position and then we spring off of our position to move forward in our Christian life. Yeah, so you guys ask me the question, and then I, I go talk for five minutes, and then the host says, in other words, this is what the truth really is. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad for that. That's this exactly is a we call it efficient talk radio. <laughs> That's right. Why did I ramble, uh, ramble on for so long? Come on, Mike, let's cut to the chase. <laughs> well, I'm no. assuming some of your listeners need to be educated on these finer points of doctrine. <laughs> uh, we, all, we all do, of course. Yeah. So, it's well, our, our, so in other words, it's our position forward. Yes, it is. And, and I think what happens is if you only look at your life uh, as it's being sanctified, uh, you're, you're going to struggle with assurance uh, if you say sanctification, looking back to justification. If you start with justification and move forward, as you're saying, I think that's going to be much more uh, in step with what the church has taught uh, since the Reformation and even, of course, what Paul teaches and what our Lord Jesus teaches. Uh, if I could put it this way, here's what I would say. Uh, here's how I'd say it. If you don't start with justification and your legal standing before God 
based on the work of the sun, you're going to look primarily to yourself. And that's what we don't want. If I had one goal in this hour with you men to tell the listeners, if you'd like to have assurance, you cannot primarily look at yourself. And if you do start there, dear Christian, I hope you don't end there. As Charles Hodge would say, most Christians are too introspective. So they're looking within in terms of the progressive sanctification, not looking to the position. And so I, I see in my life, uh, these Christians, that if they look to themselves, two things will happen. One, they become like I do, and that is self-righteous, because I, I, that's just how I do things, sadly. Or if they're honest with themselves, they become despairing, because they really admit their sins, and they really realize how they don't love their wives properly, they don't love the lost properly, and everything else. So if you start with yourself and don't go to the cross, if you start with sanctification and don't go, go to justification, if you start with practical and don't go to positional, uh, there's going to be a lot of problems. That's why I think it's better to start with positional and work to practical uh, and work to uh, my lifestyle. Uh, think about Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 and what goes on there. Um, very fascinating to know what Paul says, but you're probably going to ask me about that later anyway, so I'll stop. No, I think that's really great. I mean, there is a difference between being concerned about being holy before God and navel-gazing. Yeah, and you know what? Here's the thing. If we're honest with ourselves, are we not what Luther said, Simul Eustace said peccator? Uh, that is simultaneously just, that is declared just based on what Jesus has done and him taking our sins and sinful. Um, when I first thought, thought about pecator, I, I thought it was like pescador or some kind of, you know, a Spanish word for fish or something, you know, who knows? But <laughs> it's it is, up, right? Uh, yeah, it is simultaneously just and sinful. And so, so Luther knew that. And so from one perspective, we're totally uh, righteous, right, positionally. And the other perspective, we're sinful. And therefore, when we look long enough and hard enough at ourselves, we're going to find sin. Uh, when you say the word Puritan, it's almost like the word evangelical. It's, there are bad Puritans, right? I don't suggest you read uh, Joseph Elaine or Matthew Mead or Richard Baxter. I don't think they're good for the soul, especially in this area. Yep. But not all Puritans are bad, but Puritans tended to um, look to themselves. I think they had a propensity to look at their, their own selves. And even Joel Beakey's book, Knowing and Growing in the Assurance of Faith. By the way, if you, dear Christians, struggle with assurance, let me give you my favorite book on assurance first, then my second favorite. My first favorite is Galatians. <laughs> and that is, you will read that your standing before God is not your feelings, not your obedience, not your holy living, not your sincerity, not your submission, not your submitting to the Lordship. None of that. It's a faith in, sola fide, a simple faith in the object of your faith that is the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. You mean you went, to the, you went to the Bible first? Wow. <laughs> Who does that? But if I had another book that you could read, um, I would have you read Joel Beakey's Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith. And I think it's good uh, 
uh, practical advice for looking at objective assurance that is back to justification and your position in Christ and mm-hmm. then subjective assurance. I'm, I, I think probably my life could be a big pendulum and that mm-hmm. pendulum would be, I think I overdid it to subjective side and I looked at my own fruit and I was a fruit inspector even of my own life. And then now I know the truth about objective assurance and I might go too far thinking subjective is irrelevant in Second Peter 1 and uh, Galatians 5 and some of those passages would show that, no, you know what? When God saves you, you are different. But the, 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 the fact of the matter is, as Luther would say, when I look to myself, I don't know how I could be saved. Mm. But when I look to the Lord Jesus, I don't know how I could be lost. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Um, I also, if you don't mind, I recommend a book as well by Louis Burkhoff, The Assurance of Faith. I was just going to mention that. Yeah, Yeah. it's a very theologically astute book. I haven't read uh, Beaky's book. I'm sure it's equally astute. But um, yeah, uh, Burkhoff's book is fantastic. I had not read that that in seminary, but I picked that up a couple years ago and read it because I've been teaching a lot about assurance where I, different places that I go. And his book is great. What's the uh, Pearl of Great uh, Comfort, too? Uh, That is an excellent book uh, on assurance, maybe one of my top books i can't remember the name of it um i was getting worried because i thought you were going to say the pearl of great price (laughs) (laughs) well it's interesting if you think about it uh works-based religions that is every religion besides christianity um what kind of assurance do they get right uh therefore if we as christians see works-based religions and realize there's no assurance there, then let's make sure we don't have works-based creeping back in, a la Galatians, into our own lives, Uh because it's easy to see their error, but then the error creeps in even on the uh, assurance side. We want to make sure that we don't do that. Yeah. And Mike, they might, even worse, might have a false assurance, right? They they might think their morality is good enough. Well, absolutely. And, you know, the list goes on when if you get this, if you get justification wrong, positional um, sanctification wrong, that is like in Hebrews talked about, we're sanctified, we're set apart positionally. If you get that wrong, all these other things start spiraling out of control. And even like with the Roman Catholics, they would call the doctrine of assurance the sin of presumption that you somehow know for sure that you're saved and that's going to lead to licentiousness that's going to lead to unholy living that's going to lead to well i might as well sin that grace might abound so this is this is one of those doctrines that we have to make sure we really are careful on because there's errors on both sides and let's face it there's modern evangelical teachers who are supposedly reformed too who are waiting in the tiber river and they don't even know it I know. Why don't they go back to uh, Luther when Luther realized, you know what, the more I look at my sin, the more I look at myself, the more I look in and in and in, uh, I, I just see sin because he was a realist. He, he was honest about his own sin. And uh, I know it's kind of a bad uh, joke, but it makes me reminded of the fact that uh, his mentor, Staupitz, Von Stoppes told him, you have to stop looking at yourself. You have to quit that. And so the way I always think about my own navel gazing and my own introspection is Stoppes said, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Stop looking into your own self because you're not going to see 
uh, anything but sin, um, right? Because if God uh, yeah. uh, is going to accept you, he wants perfect righteousness. Yeah, if you're honest with yourself, that's all you're going to see. Yeah, it, it, it's so true. And what Matthew said earlier, you know, you've got a bunch of Christians now uh, who I think don't understand the difference between law and gospel, and they're blending the two together. They blend justification and sanctification, and they sound like Roman Catholics. And they're in the news of celebrity Christian pastors who talk about this all the time. And um, when I call them out on it, um, I get I, I get a lot of people that don't don't like that. So this week on No Compromise Radio, I've tried to be only Caleb, positive, encouraging. <laughs> I posted a picture of my mother. Uh, I haven't said anything about John Piper or anything like that. You have Kenny G playing in the background, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that would be blasphemous. <laughs> Listen, we uh, as Christian men, uh, we want to live holy lives. I, I don't think uh, anyone in the congregation that I'm privileged to pastor would think that I want unholy living, that uh, whether it's pornography or sexual immorality or anything else, um, that is that is not commensurate with the Christian faith. We are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I want that. Um, but I don't want our congregation uh, to think that pietism, that is this this concern of looking to the inside of a Christian, uh, pietism isn't piety. I want people to be pious and holy in light of who they are in Christ, mm-hmm. uh, not, not to keep their standing, not to earn their standing, uh, but this central concern of just looking inside of the Christian. Uh, it, it's caused problems. Uh, and it has caused this problem in particular. If I don't do such and such, uh, then all my assurance is shot. And uh, I'm on this treadmill. This is so hard though, guys, because I meet some people and if they say, you know what, I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z, and I don't really care, but now I'm struggling with assurance. Well, it's kind of built in, right? Uh, What is your standing before God? Yes. But also when you live an unholy life as a Christian, uh, you ought not to feel like you're saved. You know what I mean? And it's that person who says, I'm going to go and deliberately do it and I don't care. That's the person that you should worry about, not the person who is agonizing over their sin because they've been struggling with something. Yeah, you know, how many people do we run across and they think, you know what, did I commit the unpardonable sin? Could I ever be forgiven? And how do we deal with those bruised reeds and smoldering wicks that Isaiah 42 talk about when it's the Lord Jesus in Matthew 12? I just talked to somebody at our church this last week, and uh, Hebrews 12 talks about apostasy and uh, Esau, because Esau is just the the anti-Jesus. I mean, you want to talk about the opposite of Jesus? Uh, Esau didn't run the race. He didn't want to run to obtain the race any longer. And of course, Jesus uh, finished the race. He was the author and perfecter. He was the uh, captain of our salvation and the finisher of that. And so he ran that race. It also talks about bitterness and the root of bitterness that defiles and causes trouble. That's Esau. Uh, But that's not Jesus. Jesus runs for the joy set before him, the joy of the Father pleasing him, and the joy of saving sinners. And then lastly, it's interesting, Esau is sexually immoral, and that is either figurative, he he goes after other idols and gods, or it's literal, 
and it says it's sexually immoral and ungodly or profane. Uh, he doesn't care about transcendent things. He doesn't care about tomorrow. He doesn't care about eternity. And of course, the Lord Jesus was exactly opposite. So I said to the, my friend who was struggling with assurance, I said, do you want to quit the Christian race and throw it in and not obtain the grace of God by running? He said, no, I, I want to run. I said, do you uh, want to cause bitterness in the church? And, and uh, are you mad at God for the short end of the stick that he's given you? No, no. I said, uh, is your life showing signs of sexual immorality and living like there's no eternity, like the fool in Proverbs who says there's no tomorrow? He said, no. I said, dear friend, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Just because you sin doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. Just because you've sinned, it doesn't mean you're apostate. Let's go back to what Jesus said. And let's go back to even, um, I've been reading the Ortland book on gentle and lowly, 89 chapters if you put all the gospels together. And what's the center of the heart of Christ? He's gentle and lowly in heart. And he comes along men and women who are burdened with sin and he relieves those. And therefore, um, we had a good long talk about who Jesus was and our union with him. Yeah. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Mike, looking at this even further, well, we talked about the history slightly. We talked about Puritans and then we spoke about contemporary theologians and how they've gotten it wrong. We kind of skimmed over it, but can we, let's dig into that a little more. So what, uh, if we compare the reformed, evangelical understanding to today's evangelical understanding what are the vast differences of assurance in those two different understandings sure i think what's happened is many today will make the error of rome maybe not as overtly but there's an error of blending justification and sanctification or maybe i could put it this way since i'm in the book of hebrews we go to hebrews chapter 11 and what do we call that what's that what, what do we call that chapter hebrews 11 uh the one before hebrews 12 <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's the hall of what shame faith. no just kidding <laughs> <laughs> it's the hall of faith it's the faith chapter but that's oh, not how we okay. yeah that's not how we look at it we look at it as the faithful chapter by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Jephthah, by faith, Samson. And we say they're really faithful people. And of course, there were parts of their lives that were faithful, but that's not the faithful chapter. That's the faith chapter. Mm. So modern evangelicalism has taken that as faithfulness, by faithfulness. Now, listen, we would like to all be faithful and we would like to live a life commensurate with our calling. My son is Luke Abendroth, and I would say to him often, act like an Abendroth, right? This is who you are, live it out. But that's a faith chapter. What do I mean by that? That's shorthand for the object of your faith, the high priest, Jesus. The just shall live by what? Faith. 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 But we've turned that into faithfulness. Um, what, what, what does it really matter? Well, think about Abraham. Uh, I know I got the promises of God, but uh, is Hagar here anywhere? Uh, I know she's my wife, Sarah, uh, but I don't want you to kill uh, me. So go ahead and sleep with her. Not once, but twice. Uh, how can those men be right with God? Think about Jephthah. Is there anybody who's crazier than Jephthah? Whoever walks through that door, I'll sacrifice. How about Samson? 
Samson's crazy. How could they be mm-hmm. in the hall of faithfulness? Well, they're not. They're in the hall of faith because they were trusting in the Messiah to come. They said, you know what? We have no righteousness. We're trusting in the righteousness of another, and it is faith alone. This is going back to, to answer your question, sola fide. We have justification and sanctification. One follows. They are inseparable, but they are different. And so the problem with Rome was, how do we exact holy living in people? How do we get faithfulness? Well, if we tell them everything's fine with God, there's no condemnation. God can't love you less. He can't love you more. You can't be less justified, more justified. You can't be less union with Christ, more union with Christ. You are good to go, signed, sealed, and delivered. They're going to run around like crazy, licentious people. But friends, I know you men believe this, but the the listeners, the gospel purely preached will result in people saying, shall we sin that grace might abound? If you preach a Roman Catholic gospel, nobody asks Romans 6.1. If your gospel is believe in Jesus and be really holy, believe in Jesus and do these sacraments, People would never say, well, should I sin that grace might abound? No, because I've got to live that holy life. It's Christ transforming me as my justification. It's Christ infusing grace into me for my justification. So modern evangelicals, to answer your question directly, have bought into some of Rome's doctrine by either intentionally or inadvertently adding sanctification categories into justification and Mm. therefore making your standing before God, not Jesus's obedience, but your faith working through love, your sincerity, your submission, your suffering, your treasuring God, your delighting in God. When dear friends, when you have a little weak faith and a strong object, that is enough. Yeah. amen. 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 So, to, uh, to say that they have inadvertently or mistakenly have um, agreed to Rome's doctrine, I would assume that would come out of a misinterpretation of specific passages, correct? And so they've uh, attributed those passages to faithfulness uh, rather than faith. So can we look at some of those passages? Yeah, well, real, real quick, real quick, I would just want to state one thing before we move on is that when we talk about faith and faithfulness to, for the audience, is that we're talking about people turn faith into a work, and that's, that's a major, major problem. problem, right? Faith is the work of to have faith in the completed work of God that's outside of you. Faithfulness is to have uh, confidence in your own work, right? So yeah, if you think faith is uh, trusting in who Jesus is, his person and his work, and then faithfulness is a response to that as, uh, uh, you know, in the sanctification process where you're thinking, I'd like to be faithful. I'd like to grow in the knowledge of the grace of the Lord Jesus. I would like to live a righteous life, right? Titus chapter two, uh, I'd like to deny ungodliness. Uh, that's faithfulness, but that's not faith. And so the just shall live by faith. Think about Galatians chapter two, verse 20. The life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We never stop living by faith because we 
are sinful people still with indwelling sin. And mm-hmm. while the penalty is taken care of and, and the power is taken care of, we still have the presence of God. And that's why we have to make sure we go outside of ourselves for a right standing with God and then to receive that assurance. I mean, when I was sitting down here uh, working through that cancer issue and everything else, what was the balm to my soul was, you know what, I, I love my kids. And uh, when my kids sin, uh, and if they said, Daddy, you know, I'm worried or I'm anxious, and, and uh, how would I treat my own children? And I wouldn't kick them out uh, for a sin. I wouldn't kick them out for any sin. I, I would love them. I would care for them. I would say, come here. Daddy loves you. I will take care of you. Um, don't forget, I've always protected you. I've always cared for you. I've always been here for you. I give you the best medical care. We live in a wonderful house. We go on great vacations. Your pastor's the best pastor in the world. <laughs> and my view of God the Father essentially was lesser than my view of myself as a good dad. And so it should be the other way around. If, if I try to be a good dad, we have the heavenly father who has promised uh, and his name is on the line for loving his children, whether they sin or not. When we sin, we will be chastened. We could be disciplined, but we're never going to be punished. And therefore, when we have all these hoops to jump through, if my son said, I've got to do all these things to stay dad's son, I would say that is not how this works. But that's how many Christians have turned the doctrine of security and assurance. I just have to make sure I do these things. And uh, the celebrity Christian, he treasures God a lot. I don't think I treasure God that much. What do you do with that? versus going back to outside of us, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and thinking about passages like 1 John, when you go to 1 John and think, you know what, look at all these, these things that Christians should be doing. Mm-hmm. That's all true. You should be confessing your sin. You should be confessing Jesus as Lord. You should love not the world. You should love uh, the people of God. Uh, you should love God. Those are all true. And I say, you know what? As a s- person who wants to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord, that's true. But dear friends, at the center of First John are these words. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, that's present tense, with the Father, Jesus Christ. And by the way, in the Greek, there's no the. Jesus Christ, righteous, by essence, by nature, by quality, he's righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's at the center of it all. And therefore, I think we have to make sure we don't go to 1 John and say, well, uh, these are all your tests. Do you measure up? Uh, Let's talk about who you are in Christ Jesus, and then let's look at some tests and not the other way around. So the problem is always separating imperatives from the indicatives. The, the imperatives need to flow out of the indicatives in Scripture. That seems like yeah, and, and you know what, Matt? I think that while I would agree with that, I'd even make it more reformed. And I would say, let's make sure we get law and gospel right. Amen. Uh, and so if it's indicative imperative, yes, there are those grammatically, but theologically, Think about law just for a second. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with keeping the law and responding well to God, let's go back to that father motif. So the law um, of God 
is uh, commensurate with his attributes. That is to say, since God is holy and just and righteous and immutable, that's his law is the same. It reflects, excuse me, it reflects his nature. But here's the good news. When God saves you, your relationship to the lawgiver changes. His law never changes, but your relationship to him changes. How does that work? Well, instead of having the judge tell you, obey this law or you're banished, that is to say in the Bible, obey this law perfectly or you're going to go to hell. Now that you have an advocate, now that you have a mediator, an umpire, uh, somebody who's a great high priest who's kept that law for you, offered himself and has been raised from the dead, your relationship to the judge is no longer judge. It's father. So he gives you the same law because his law is immutable because his character is immutable. But that law does not come to you from a judge but from a father and so he says since you're my son i'd like you to do these things the judge says do this or you're out the father says i'd like you to do this because you're my son and so if you can get that right that the judge is no longer giving you the law that is the first use of the law but it's the third use of the law that is you're receiving the law from the hand of a father when you disobey your dad at home physically, he doesn't kick you out of the household. How much more does the Father in heaven not kick us out when his own name name and reputation is on the line for initially saving and finally saving in justification? So I think if you can think of law and gospel and legally um, uh, uh, judge and father, I think you're going to be helped in assurance. Wow. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's awesome. Thanks, Mike. Beautiful. Well, you're welcome. I mean, if you take a look at, you know, and Oneg said something about what are some of those passages. Uh, I don't know why people go to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and say things uh, about uh, losing assurance. I'm not going to name the names right now, but if you go to your commentary section in Romans chapter Mm -hmm. 8, and you just go to some of your favorite commentaries in Romans 8. I mean your favorite ones. They'll say things about Romans 8.1, and then they give kind of a but. It's, it's like, you know what? We don't want to just throw that out there. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because people are going to go do crazy things and sin. But it's thrown out there. It's supposed to just have that, that oh, really? Is that true? Uh, but one of the reasons why this happens in evangelicalism, because this was an earlier question, I think the answer is because we are too often biblicists. That is to yeah. say, we look at a verse in the Bible and we forget something. So here's how you can avoid being a biblicist. They're kind of four four quick reminders. Um, and I think I read this in a Richard Barcellus book uh, on hermeneutics. <clears throat> here's how you kind of think about hermeneutics. Mm. Number one, the only infallible interpretation of the Bible is from the Holy Spirit. That is to say, if he is interpreting the Old Testament, right, new interprets the old, that's number one. Number two, the analogy of Scripture. What does the Scripture say elsewhere? What does it say elsewhere about this topic? Number three, the analogy of faith. There are 
many authors in scripture, human authors, but there is one divine author, and therefore there's an organic unity to uh, the faith from Genesis to Revelation, one divine author. So the analogy of faith is putting that all together, almost like a systematic theology. Mm -hmm. And then number four, what's the scope of scripture? Where does it all lead? And it all leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you can kind of look at scripture through that lens, that will prevent you from looking at a verse and saying, I will now make a doctrine based on this verse. And I think that's what the reformers did. And so that's where confessions and creeds come in, where the church has looked at these doctrines through the inspiration of the Spirit of God with the analogy of Scripture, analogy of faith, and the scope of, scope of Scripture. And now they see these troubles and these these issues, and therefore the opposite of biblicism, uh, just looking at the Bible literally without considering the Holy Spirit's work in the church for the last 2,000 years. Uh, we can look to confessions and other things that have helped us uh, understand Scripture. Someone has been spending a lot of time on the Heidel blog. <laughs> Who's that? Is this a self-confession? <laughs> Talking about you. <laughs> well, Me, when me I, too, though. I confess it. Uh, you know what? There's a lot of good resources there. Scott's been helpful to me, yes. even though I'm a Baptist. And uh, I want you to know when I went uh, to Escondido uh, last year, I not only read the Heidel blog, blog, but I went in the Heidel Jeep and I'm. <laughs> I met the Heidel dog. Too. I was going to ask you, did you meet the Heidel dog? Yes. I, I did. And when Scott uh, came here to stay with me at my house, he met uh, the NoCo mascot, my little dog. Nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, you know what? I think uh, maybe I could just put it this way. If you're listening uh, to the show today, uh, I think you would be anything but impoverished if you read the Westminster Confession the Belgic Confession, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the London Baptist 1689. Uh, even the other day, I thought, you know what? I'm going to memorize the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I know it's a basic creed, but, you know, I just began to memorize it, and I thought, this is so fascinating. When it talks about the Son, it says, of him who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and then the very next line was almost my favorite line, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and I'll tell you why it's my favorite in a second, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again and ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father who will come to judge the living and the dead, or something like that. But he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why is that so critical? Because Christianity is a historical fact, right? This is not yeah. Buddhism and Hinduism and other things. J. Gresham Machen wrote an article about history and Christianity, and we have to have a historical Jesus or else everything is gone and over. But I remember walking in uh, Caesarea uh, by the sea in Israel, seeing that plaque that talked about Pontius Pilate that we've discovered. And this was a real um, uh, a man, Pilate, who judged a real man, Jesus. Of course, he was more than a man, but still he was a man. And therefore, these kind of things pop up and we see them in confessions and creeds. And I just think we're impoverished if we don't read how the Holy Spirit of God has been working through the church ages to help us, even, dear Christian, with the doctrine of assurance. This is not just new to us. This doctrine has been fleshed out, and these issues have been worked out pastorally with great um, eloquence um, 
even in the Baptist, uh, excuse me, the Belgic, the Belgic Confession. Read the Belgic Confession on the last judgment. If you're a Christian today and you're struggling with assurance, read the last judgment. Can you imagine? It says in there, God the Son is going to confess you before the Father as one of his own. You just read that and you go, wow. Yeah, it's that's unbelievable. What it's about, encouraging. But what about my final salvation? Yeah. Well, left to yourself, you're pretty much smoked. Uh, there is a two-step salvation uh, that's being taught very often these days. And when you're justified, dear friends, you're justified. And uh, that verdict is not going to change. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. If God is for you, nobody can be against you. And whether it's Satan, your own sin, cults, works, righteousness, uh, Paul challenges people in Romans 8 to find someone who can contradict them and who would dare approach the bench of God as a prosecutor after Jesus has perfectly paid for all your sins and perfectly earned a righteousness that is acceptable to God. Um, that's not the God that we serve as a God mm -hmm. who is then going to require more obedience. I mean, think about it. Here's the problem with all this. You have to obey now as a Christian in order to keep your salvation or to earn it or to have a final justification. Here's my question. How much? Right. It's always more. That book that's out that's getting suppressed now, it came out two years ago by Matthew Bates, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. That's awful. How, the question everybody should ask is how much allegiance? How much right. surrender? How much submission? How much sincerity? That's all. That's all Roman Catholic stuff. Do yeah. I want you to have allegiance to God? Yes, in sanctification. Do I want you to surrender to God? Yes, in sanctification. There's something called sola fide for a reason, because it is faith alone, because that recognizes there's nothing in me, something outside of me, and I will rest in the Lord, and I will receive him as he is proclaimed to be in the scripture. And so if you're on the treadmill of doing more, it's gonna, you're going you're gonna to either be self-righteous or you're going to be despairing. Those are your two options, because otherwise you'll have no assurance or you'll really think you're great because you'll dumb down the law. People think, you know what, Mike, you're an antinomian because you're, you're disregarding somehow this law keeping as a Christian. Right. A, I'm not an antinomian. B, I don't disregard the law keeping for a Christian. I want the third use of the law. And C, you're the one detractor who does that because you're having people obey the law to finally be justified. But God requires what? perfect, entire, exact, perpetual, personal obedience. It's the doers of the law who shall be justified. You're, you're making God some kind of deity that's reluctant to somehow honor his initial promise of, of justification. Now I'm starting to preach a little bit. You can see my... <laughs> you know, I think it was John Fonville who said, yeah, it was John who said that with antinomianism, it's an underrealized eschatology, but with, you know, triumphalism or Keswick theology, it's a overrealized eschatology. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, yeah. I just was scrolling through my, my notes here. Uh, think about the finished work of Jesus that Romans 8 talks about. Here's what Luther said. What is the gospel? It is this, that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners, John 3, 16 and to crush hell, overcome death, take away sin, satisfy the law. What must you do? Nothing but accept this and look up 
to your Redeemer and firmly believe that he has done all this for your good and freely gives you all as his own so that in the terrors of death, sin, and hell, you can confidently say and boldly depend upon it, although I do not fulfill the law, Although sin is still present and I fear death and hell, nevertheless, from the gospel, I know that Christ has bestowed on me all his works. I am sure he will not lie. His promise he will surely fulfill. Yeah, amen. amen. So, Mike, I mean, we understand that good works, there is a benefit to it, um, of course, because um, even in the Heidelberg Catechism, they they qualify um, their their understanding of good works with this. They say, since then we are redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own. Uh, why must we do good works? And the answer is in part that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof. So they don't disagree that good works are, uh, uh, that uh, some theologians say bolster our insurance or give us uh, uh, an assurance uh, subjectively, but they qualify it. They say it's only by the grace of God that we even have the good works. And I think that's important because I think some of our detractors and people that think that we're off the deep end uh, regarding this, that we don't see a place for good works or we don't value them or don't want to talk about holy living or something like that. Uh, confessionally speaking, of course, we value good works and holy living, but they do stem from the grace of God and are motivated by the person of our Lord, the person of the Lord Jesus. Think yeah. about why do we do things? What, what do we, how do we motivate? Uh, is it by the law? Does the law motivate it all? Uh, I think it was Fonville or somebody who said the law is like a GPS. And that is, it just tells you you're going straight, good job, or uh, you're deviating. It's kind of like our conscience, right? It, it just either accuses or excuses. So what motivates a Christian? That's why we have to talk about the Lord Jesus to Christians as well and preach the gospel. And the gospel is simply who Jesus is and what he's done, this great proclamation of that truth. And so that's the motivation. So if you look at Romans, i.e. the template of Romans for the Heidelberg Catechism, it's guilt, grace, and gratitude. Why are we motivated to do anything? And it's not to keep our standing. Uh, it's because of our standing, and we want to respond out of gratitude. <clears throat> Furthermore, uh, how does God accept our, our good works? Our works are still tainted Right. Yeah, this yeah. is one of the great things that Calvin has taught, that God accepts our good works, even though they're not so good. But he accepts them because he accepts us in Christ Jesus. And so here's the way I like to think about it. You guys are probably too young for this, but there used to be a, 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 a child's oven called easy bake oven that children could have remember easy bake ovens totally. and yep. uh yeah you know it's like a monopoly the kids would get for christmas and an easy bake oven and it cooked with light bulbs and so there was a light bulb right. in there and it had a little packet of of a cake mix and you'd add water and i remember my sister making one and you would shut the little easy bake oven and uh I was always frustrated because after it baked, it wouldn't let you open it until it was cool, right? So you couldn't kind of eat this hot cake. Well, can you imagine? Think about this just for a second. Um, you take that cake, 
uh, and you present it to Gordon Ramsay at Master Chef competition. <laughs> he he judges that cake to be insufficient and awful, and he's probably right. <laughs> but the same girl who makes that same cake doesn't present it to Gordon Ramsay. She presents it to her dad. Says, Daddy, I made you a cake. Why does he accept that cake that's got too much salt and didn't rise? Answer, because he accepts the daughter, therefore he accepts the cake. Yes, therefore, when, when we offer up prayers that are lacking, and when we offer up praise that is lacking, and we are sinful in our response to God with our thanksgiving and our evangelism and whatever we might do, yes, it's true it's sin, and we ought to ask God to forgive us, and we ought to desire to live a holy life. But God still accepts us. He doesn't kick us out because our good works are somehow less than perfect. They never can be perfect. And so with the best motives we can, we offer up praise and thanksgiving and honoring uh, obedience to God. And he accepts those things uh, like a cake with too, too much, much salt, salt because he accepts, he accepts us. So, Mike, are you saying Gordon Ramsay is law and that little girl's <laughs> father is gospel? Uh, he is judge, jury, and executioner. <laughs> wow. It is law and gospel right there. So instead of kitchen nightmares, it's justification nightmares? <laughs> well, I could have said, you know, uh, he takes the bagels and he puts them on the little girl's head and says, are you an idiot sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> well, even the way we read the Bible, I just looking at my notes here, uh, Romans 8, um, what shall separate us from the love of God? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8, 35. Here's how we tend to read that, because we're so man-centered. It's my love for God. What shall separate us? But it's not that at all. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's his love for me. And his love for me, as Charles Hodge would say, is immutable and it is gratuitous. Uh, it is over the top. And therefore, uh, what can separate me from that? Of course, if he's already paid for my sins, there's nothing that can separate me. And so I just think what happens these days is uh, we have a faulty Christology. And I think we need to go back to study the person and work of Jesus. Uh, when I was with St. Clair Ferguson years ago in Orlando, he said, Mike, tell me what you're doing. What are you, you know, you have any projects? And I just started to write some books and I wrote uh, the first two about Jesus. And he wanted to know all about them. And, and he said, they'll never sell. <laughs> I said, well, I know I'm not a very good writer, but why won't they sell? Well, nobody buys books about Jesus. Mm. You know what they do? They buy marriage books, end times books. Of course, I'm not going to say everything's wrong with marriage books and end times books, but why don't people read Christological books anymore? Uh, that's why I've been loving that Ortland book on Gentle and Lowly because it's about Thomas Goodwin's little paperback, uh, Puritan paperback on the love of Christ, and it's about Christ excelling, abounding love. You listeners might ask yourself the question, when's the last book I read about Jesus? Why don't we read books about Jesus and his person and his work and his heart to not only please the Father, uh, but love sinners and lay down his life for them? And I think if you get a right Christology, your assurance is going to go way up. Yeah, Mike, yeah. can you please um, address 
the Christian out there who might be listening, who might be really struggling, whether it be anger, struggling in their marriage, maybe pornography, etc., etc., and how would assurance apply to this, and how would you point them to Christ? Yeah, well, when I have people come to me and they're struggling with some sin in their life, uh, the old me was basically, uh, let's just... I don't know, probably scold them for quite some time and uh, give them the law only. And maybe at the end I might hug them and say that I love you. Uh, but now it's a little bit different. Uh, while I address their sin and tell them that they need to repent, uh, we talk a lot about who Jesus is and, and what he thinks, because that's doing two things. I, I need to remind them who he is, and I need to give them a motivation uh, to repent and, and, and to stop that. Uh, what do we do with people um, and pornography? Uh, if you think about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for instance, uh, and sexual immorality, um, we are told, I think there are three uh, imperatives in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 20. Uh, don't be deceived. Uh, flee sexual immorality. Glorify God with your body. And I would talk to them. I talked to you listener about that very thing that if you're into pornography uh i guess it could be true uh that you might not be a christian at all we might work through do not be deceived uh, i would talk to them about they need to flee that very issue and talk about glorifying god with their body but then there's probably 10 gospel indicatives in there that talk about God's love for sinful people even sexually sinful people and it talks about things like washed sanctified, justified, uh, talks about union with Christ. And I would probably really go back and work through with them the person and work of Christ, asking them questions about it, rehearsing who Jesus was to give them the motivation for the obedience. Uh, there's nothing wrong with X filters, uh, XXX filters on your computer, our accountability groups. But more importantly, this is the Savior who came to lay down his life for you. And this is how he expects you to live in light of this great work that he's done. And so um, pornography is one of those things these days uh, that it is a bane and it is uh, awful and it is sullying and it shows a heart of a person. Uh, but it doesn't mean if you look at pornography, you're not a Christian. Um, yeah. It, it, it feels weird because I don't want to give people an out, right? I, I want to exact them with law. Uh, I want to paint a picture of what their wives would think and their children would think and, and uh, how sullying this is. And, and uh, I talk about a little bit in my book about sexual fidelity. But for the Christian, because you asked the question, Matt, what about the Christian? I would say to the Christian, uh, while you shouldn't feel subjectively uh, good about any of this stuff because God is chastening you. And of course, uh, there's a sense that you, you feel the spirit of God isn't close because you have put this barrier in front of, of uh, uh, the path. This is what God does. And if he loved you when you were an enemy, does he not love you when you're a son? And if I caught my son with pornography, I would discipline him and I would chasten him and there would be consequences. But I would tell him like I did every time I, when he was little and he did something wrong, daddy's not mad at you. 
daddy loves you. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do to separate um, me from my love for you. And I'm going to do this chastening because in fact, I do love you and I want to train you and I want to teach you because um, this is what is honoring to me and honoring uh, to the God who made you. And so I think it, even with my cadence and countenance that I'm talking now, there's a way uh, to, to go to a bruised reed and a smoldering wick of a Christian and while I would want to spit them out and, you know, the reeds they would use for flutes, uh, shepherds, you would just toss them. That's not what the Lord Jesus does. Uh, when you think about the incarnation and the Lord Jesus, while in counseling, here's what I think and probably used to say. I can't believe you did that. That was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, I've heard a lot of people confess a lot of things. And my gut response is typically in my heart. That is so bad. I don't know how you ever got yourself in that situation. I can't believe you did that. But with the incarnation, I think this is how Jesus responds. While he says it's wrong and I want you to repent, here's what Jesus says when it comes to temptation. I know. Mm. I understand. I have been tempted. Now, I'm not saying Jesus ever did any of those things. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus knows. He, he knows temptation. He knows the struggle. He knows what it's like to be on this earth with all the hordes of hell after him and everything else. Uh, but there is a high priest. Uh, there is a great high priest, and uh, I would take them probably to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, and I would want them to try to be melted by the love of Christ for them so they would want to respond in a way that's right and holy versus just blast them. How could you? Does that make sense? Amen. And Mike, before we get going, what is the gospel? I love that question because we try to make our uh, – uh, new members have a one-minute gospel, and uh, what typically people do is for 45 seconds, they talk about their own sin and this, that, and the other, and life experience, and then they never get to it, uh, but we like to just try to do it in a minute or less. Uh, I think it could be and so now I'm going to start now, so that, that doesn't count. That part doesn't count. This part <laughs> counts right now. <laughs> Three, two, one. <laughs> you're going to time me. Yes. Uh, God is righteous and he always does right. And he makes people and he expects them to do the right thing as their creator. He expects them to do right. Sadly, there was a man named Adam that God put in the garden. That wasn't the sad part, but Adam didn't do right. And Adam was the representative for everyone else as a federal head. And so God could have just destroyed Adam and everyone else, including us because of our sin, which we deserved to be destroyed by and for, but he, he sent someone else and his name is Jesus. And so this eternal son adds humanity. He's perfectly God, perfectly man. He adds humanity and he now is the next Adam, the last Adam. And he perfectly obeys the law that we should have, but didn't. And then he pays for uh, our law breaking on Calvary. Um, and then he is raised from the dead. And of course he ascended into the heaven to seat at the right hand of the father now. Uh, but the gospel is simply this. It's good news that even though you're sinful, Jesus Christ died to save sinful people. And the response of the gospel is you have faith in him. You rest in him. It's not strictly speaking the gospel, but that is the response. Peter preached about the personal work of Jesus and how he saved sinners uh, of all shapes and sizes. And the people said, what must we do? They, they, they knew there was response. So strictly speaking, the gospel is Jesus Christ because of who he is and his nature of benevolence and love saves sinners 
um, by living for them, dying for them, and being raised for them. Amen. Mike, before I let the before I let you go, where can people reach you? Where can people reach me? Well, there's a little uh, giving thing on our website, and if you give them a certain amount of money, there then then the email goes through. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you stop calling those indulgences or <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, um, you can reach me mike at nocompromiseradio.com uh, there's a couple ways to listen uh, to the show you can go to nocompromiseradio.com uh, you can go to iTunes uh, and if you want to hear my sermons you can go to Bethlehem Bible Church website that's bbcchurch.org bbcchurch.org I want to make sure that our people understand uh, that on No Compromise Radio sometimes I'm after people because there should be no compromise but on Sundays what I do is I talk about Jesus if you don't like to hear about Jesus, don't tune in to bbcchurch.org because every week it's the book of Hebrews and it is the person and work of Jesus. And then there's imperatives at the end. Yes, there's some warnings mixed in, but it's all about the Lord Jesus. That is the only sermon we have in all the New Testament for a church that existed and somebody preached that sermon. And it is a Christ-centered sermon from every side. So you can reach me at Mike at NoCompromiseRadio.com. So are you saying on NoCo Radio it's law and then on Sundays it's gospel? <laughs> well, the funny thing is I've done about 2,500 shows over the years. And sometimes I have to say, you know, my old shows, I think I was a little more law-oriented than gospel now. And uh, so I think there's been a maturation. And isn't that wonderful? And think about how kind the Lord is with us. And we have all learned and grown and we've changed in some theological things. So if you, dear listener, have come to these conclusions of confessionalism and law gospel and assurance on position and objective sides first and uh, no uh, final steps for justification, etc. Remember, be be, be be patient with other people because they're going through what you're going through. And that is, um, we didn't arrive. Other people came alongside and taught these things to us. And so I, I am glad I'm not judged based on my older shows on No Compromise Radio. Amen. The problem is, guys, what am I going to believe in the next 10 years? I'm going to keep maturing, right? Uh -huh. I'm believing things right now that probably aren't right. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> and Odig, where can people reach us? Uh, they can reach us uh, back to the Reformation uh, with uh, at the email address of info at bttrmin.org or back to the Reformation at gmail.com. They can find us on Facebook, on Twitter with the bttrmin handle, and uh, our podcast is on Apple. Google, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, and at our website, bttrmin.org. Great. Hey, guys, before we leave, I just was uh, looking through my work here on assurance, and I scrolled down, and I want to just read this quote from Joel Beakey, because I think this will also help in the middle of all this kind of COVID crisis stuff, too. Mm -hmm. Four means of assurance. Okay, how do we get assurance? And Beaky writes in, in knowing and growing in assurance of faith, these four ways, God's word, the sacraments, prayer, and affliction. Mm -hmm. Because when you're afflicted, what do you do? 
the knee-jerk response in Romans 8 is, Abba, Father, Daddy, I need help. And uh, um, that's a a good way to increase assurance. So maybe you're out there saying, I'd like to have more assurance. Well, uh, the God's word, which will be all about Jesus, sacraments, which are about Jesus, prayer uh, through Jesus, and then affliction. And Jesus is there. I won't leave you. Beautiful. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. Well, we wanted to thank Mike again for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. And we wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen in. And we hope you join us next time for another episode. See ya. See ya.